Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, on this show over the past year, we've talked an awful lot about free speech and the decline in free expression and indeed what we should do about it. In fact, it's the question that most people ask. They're on side with all the arguments, but what actually do we do to preserve free speech in this society? Now, I'm very pleased today that my guest is uh, the barrister Francis Hoare. Uh, Francis specialises in public law and employment law. He's just written a report which was commissioned by Lawrence Fox's Reclaim Party, and it's In Protection of Freedom of Speech, a Legal Analysis. This is the report here. Uh, and basically, it is looking at what we can do legally to make sure that free speech in our country remains intact. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank Francis. you for having me. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Before we look at the actual report, it is extraordinary, is it not, that we're even talking about how we might protect something which we took for granted for generations. Mm. And yes. when you uh, talk in the report, you, you mention how you know, free speech is at the absolute basis of a democratic liberal society such as ours. But, um, it's right to say, is it not, that the basic idea behind your report is that free speech should be enshrined in some way in, in our legal system? Yes, I, I wouldn't say, so I think that there is another question, which is whether or not we should have um, a, a written, what's called a written constitution, really a codified constitution, one constitutional document. And that isn't a question that I address in the report. And there are a number of proposals, six proposals that we make. They're all proposals to change the law. But I think what I would say about that is that what the last 18 months, I think, has shown in general terms is that in every country around the world is that whatever constitutional settlement you have, all of them ultimately depend on the culture behind it and the human beings who are in a position to protect fundamental rights. Mm. And however well constructed your constitution is, and however nominally fair it might be, and remember the Soviets had a constitution that on its face gave all sorts of freedoms to the people and the republics of the Soviet Union. Um, that however good that is, it's always reliant on human beings. So I, I, I would draw back from saying that we want, uh, the, the, the proposal behind the report was to enshrine anything other than, of course, legal changes, of course, are enshrined in law by definition, and say that what really is needed is a change in culture mm. um, and a culture which recognises that freedom and free speech, in particular the freedom of expression, is at the outset. I think I say at the beginning, and I think this is important, you say democratic, but it goes much further than that. Mm. It goes further back than that. Uh, and expression is behind all constitute, all developments, um, scientific, in the arts, everything really, behind human beings. Um, and it's about the expression of ideas. 
without the expression of ideas, nothing would happen. Civilization yeah. itself yeah. is based on the expression of ideas. Right. I think uh, what struck me about it is that, um, well, actually, this is a, a quite massive area, but you've been really quite concentrated in the reform mm. in two areas. I mean, there's, broadly speaking, I think I'm correct in saying this, to do with hate crime. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other side as well is, which is connected, of course, is that it is in some ways a response to this online safety mm -hmm. bill that mm -hmm. the government is putting through. Mm. Before we talk about what you're saying in here, what actually is the government, what is the essence of this bill, the online safety bill that this opposes? The, the essence of the bill, I mean, there's a concept called safetyism, which isn't my word. Um, it's the word of some Northern American academics describing particularly the um, change in culture, as I was saying, culture, the culture of suppression of free speech in alliance with what is perceived to be people's safety. And it's interesting that originally the um, online harms bill was renamed the online safety bill. And that's an interesting mm. example of how that culture of safetyism has been built in. And what the bill proposes is that any um, website uh, that has fulfilled specific criteria, which would include all the social media companies, all the major social media companies, would have a duty of care, not to any particular individual, but a duty to remove any material that could cause an adult of reasonable sensibilities serious harm. Mm. And that can be physical or um, more likely psychological. Mm. You, know, you think about great literature and you think about political ideas. Um, it is very, very easy to see that that could involve a vast weight, a vast um, amount of speech and novels um, and ideas, scientific ideas and so on, uh, quite possibly including uh, ideas about scientific innovation or criticisms of scientific ideas which the state might say are harmful and we mm. see plenty of examples of that mm. in the suppression by social media companies already mm. of peer-reviewed um, scientific ideas which are contrary to the what those social media companies like to promote um, so it's extremely dangerous and in fact Although, as you say, there were proposals in the report, for me, the most fundamental threat to freedom of speech is perhaps that online safety bill. Utterly right. pernicious and very dangerous. Thing. What stage is that at at the moment? It, it's at the stage, so it's about to go into its second reading, which is the first time the, the principle of the debate is um, put before both houses of parliament, or each house of parliament in turn, I think in the House of Commons first, although it may possibly be in the House of Lords. Then it will go into committee, uh, which will be probably in this case not a committee of the whole House, a select standing mm -hmm. committee to reflect the balance of the House, which will debate the particular clauses, and then it will come back for its final third reading, uh, where the bill is approved or not by each House of Parliament in turn. What is this? How do they? Uh, how do they define harm? You mentioned this word harm. Might cause harm. Well. You know, in sort of layman's speech, my, my speech, you know, it seems to me that it's about words, whereas maybe once before it was just actions, you know, that 
sticks and stones can break my bones, you know, names can never hurt me. Mm. Uh, but this is now becoming, this is sort of enshrining in law, isn't it, or, or integrating into law this idea that harm is what? To someone's, what, mental well-being? What, what, would, it, what would it be? The, the key answer is they don't. They do not define harm, save that really? it is something that an adult of reasonable sensibilities could cause an adult of reasonable sensibilities serious harm. It is simply not defined. And that's the most dangerous part of this, because as I set out in the report, um, the proposal that um, is made in the report is for social medias, rather than be forced to censor, be forced not to censor, save where there is a defined criminal offence or civil harm. And there are provisions in our recommendations that give the right of social media to companies to withdraw um, statements where they may, um, there is reasonable suspicion that they may uh, mm. cause civil um, wrongs or criminal harms while they investigate. Mm. But if they find that they do not, they must put them back on social media platforms. Now, I fully accept that that is may be difficult to implement, but it at least relies upon the certainty that the, in both the criminal law and the civil law of uh, what is a civil harm, libel, for example, is, yeah. is, is an example, personal injury potentially, although it's difficult to conceive of how it might be caused by simply uh, words on the uh, in, in social media companies, and criminal offences which are deliberately set out in the report the very large number of criminal offences that might be committed by individuals on the internet, all clear, defined um, things. And there's always going to be some degree of uncertainty. Do you fit within this criminal definition or not? Mm. But the whole point of the criminal law, especially in a, in a common law country like the United Kingdom, where we have, um, where, 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 where um, criminal offences are defined by statute, is to make them clear. Yeah. Um, and then if there is a lack of clarity, the courts often have case law to clarify what is meant and that that case law can evolve to encompass social mores, which mm. is the benefit of the common law system. But there's certainty there. Um, and there's absolutely no certainty in this bill. So you, you're, I think one of your um, suggestions in here, one of your proposals, is that this online safety bill should be just opposed, mm -hmm. you know, totally. hook, you know, hook, line and sinker. Is, is that right? Yes. Um, you know, this might seem, uh, again, unsophisticated, unsophisticated question, but how, how can people who feel strongly about this, how can they oppose at the moment, Francis? How, if it's going through these stages and it's going through committees, what is the best thing they can do? Is it a question of just writing to MPs, your MP, to sort of point out the, the you know, jeopardy here or what? Well, it's certainly that, and that does matter because that is something that every constituent can do. Um, it, it, it's clearly not going to be enough in itself. And what is also needed is more people in the public eye, both politicians, commentators, journalists, um, and perhaps... Um, people from scientific backgrounds, from backgrounds in the arts. I mean, remember Rowan Atkinson has mm, been a famous mm, campaigner mm. for freedom of speech. We need more of that. We need this to be much more in the public eye because it's only if the government is forced to recognise that it's supposedly a liberal conservative government, both in small cases um, 
and nominally a conservative government. And conservative doesn't just mean we respect tradition. It means we respect the traditions that build up um, and are behind this United Kingdom and England in the past and Scotland in the past. One, a central part of which is expressed in the Bill of Rights, um, 1689, which expresses ancient liberties, which include the liberty to petition the king, that is to say, to make any argument before the civil authority, before the government. Um, and that's an essential expression of our freedom of expression, which has been recognised as it happens recently. It's not just an old statute. It's been recognised in very recent um, case law as being the background behind what is now Article 10 of the mm. European Convention of Human Rights mm. and Article 9, which accompanies it, which protects the freedom of conscience. I think I go into the, in the report to say that the protection of, um, the recognition of the protection of freedom of conscience perhaps prefigures freedom of speech by 150 years ago or so, Thomas More famously standing for that, but at the same time persecuting heretics. So the, the yes, idea that yes. there was still there yeah. in that era, the, the late medieval, early Renaissance era, um, not quite the idea of freedom of speech, but it was developing. And even, even at that stage, we had elections that were free and people had the freedom to petition Parliament. Parliament mm. was originally, the House of Commons was mm. formed to enable the people to petition the king. So these are ancient liberties, and that's reflected in many other European, especially European countries, ancient liberties. So it's not really a case, is it, of uh, trying to uh, develop some kind of version of the First Amendment, is it? We, we had this, you say the 1689 Bill of Rights, which I think only applied to MPs, didn't it? I think. It, oh, I, I don't <laughs> think that's right, because it, it, it gives the right of petition to the Crown for right. anyone. And, right. and petition means the right to speak freely to the Crown. It doesn't just mean um, a, a written petition. It's been defined quite rightly far more widely than that. And it was accepted at the time that it was more widely than that. It's the right to go to outside Parliament and protest. Mm. It's the right to write to the government, representatives of the Crown. Mm. It's the right to make um, expressions of opposition to the King. Mm. I mean, I accept that it, perhaps on one view is, is a little bit more limited than that, but that is the ethos, that is the cultural mm. ethos that mm. is behind it. Uh, another crucial area here is, is the one of what we, what have become known as uh, non-crime hate incidents. I know a bit about this myself having been on the London Assembly, this came up all the time, mm. Uh, mm. particularly the case of Harry Miller, who's mm -hmm. been on this channel. Mm -hmm. um, but this is where the police can record mm -hmm. something which doesn't quite get to be a crime, but which they suspect was motivated by, in their words, hatred. Mm -hmm. um, what is your proposal in the report about that situation? Which is, the, the, the proposal there is to withdraw all guidelines that allow the police to record um, incidents that are not, at least there is not a reasonable suspicion that they are criminal offences. So the whole concept of non-hate, non-crime hate incidents, I think is how it's put, mm. is utterly flawed and dangerous. Mm. Now, of course, that is not to say that police don't, police forces don't, when there is a real reason to, to be concerned that somebody might have dangerous tendencies to create intelligence upon that person. But the idea that they can have an entire, uh, can target somebody like Harry Miller, yeah. 
um, purely for saying um, things that other people found uncomfortable, um, but reflect, he would say at least, biological reality and also are held by large numbers of people, opinions held by large numbers of people, albeit other people find them hurtful. To say that the police can investigate him is entirely wrong. High Court found on his favour on that point. On the other, more perhaps broader issue and more important issue potentially, which is before the Court of Appeal at the moment as it happens, um, the, 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 the question is, is it lawful, and it's still not been decided by the Court of Appeal, is it lawful to be able to record incidents which are not criminal offences where there is no other operational reasons to do so. Um, and, and in my view, that is entirely wrong. I, I would say unlawful too and should be struck yeah. down by the Court of Appeal. But if it is, isn't, then the suggestion is that the, the statute should intervene and change that. I, so it, need, it would need legislative change because you see, this is guidance, isn't it? This is not exactly, yeah. this is not a sort of like a law, it is police guidance. It, it, it's gui it, it itself is guidance. And it, when it, when, um, so, so this is why the Court of Appeal found against, because Mr. Justice Knowles found that the, um, there was not any direct effect, essentially, um, for the police recording the non-hate crime incident. However, that's not, I, I suggest, correct, because in fact, the result of that is that the, um, w if that person wanted to work with children or vulnerable adults, oh, yes. the safeguarding process, um, which is understandable, but put, has been implemented in what I think is quite a dangerous way that attacks the um, presumption of innocence. Now, one can understand when one is protecting um, children and vulnerable adults that one needs to um, decide on a basis that's not just a criminal conviction. So I understand that. But, but it, it, in some cases in the past, it's been the case that even if you cannot disprove um, that you committed a particular offence, that must stay on your record mm -hmm. and may be mm -hmm. taken into account by the, um, by, by the, the safeguarding Mm. Uh, reviewers mm. uh, and that so so it does have a direct effect potentially mm. on mm. people like Harry Miller who have that recorded mm. against them this was a case obviously just in case you you don't remember uh, where Harry Miller liked some tweets that were somebody thought transphobic you know it was just it was simple as that and the police turned up didn't they and said we need to check your thinking uh, I mean quite quite Chilling, actually, mm. Uh, mm. and and extraordinary. Um, one thing. I, and sorry, I, just sorry to interrupt, but also that goes that offends against the Thomas More principle of liberty of conscience. Yes, yeah, yes. let alone liberty of thought. Yeah, we have to yeah. check your thinking. Yeah. Sorry. Peter. You specialise, don't you, as one in employment, mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot to do with employment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. There is this phenomenon now of people. I think it's one very recently, actually. Guy lost his job because he uh, said something about Sharia law. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know what the position is in his case, but first of all, is this a, is this a growing phenomenon? Are people actually maybe losing their job because of something they've said on social media? I mean, we hear it in the paper, but how widespread is this now? It's very difficult to know definitively because we can see legal cases and um, cases that make the media, such as that one. Mm. The, the big legal case here is the 
case of Maya Forstater, who another case yeah. where um, Miss Forstater was making points about her belief in the reality of biology and that it would not be it's not appropriate to define things in terms of gender but in terms of sex, which is immutable. Um, and she lost in the employment tribunal, but won in the employment appeal tribunal. Won her argument that she had a philosophical belief that was that was worthy of protection, and that is actually a protected characteristic under the 2010 Equality Act. Mm. And therefore, because she was in an employment dispute rather than. Uh, before a public body which was trying to suppress her speech, it was more difficult for her directly to rely on human rights because the Human Rights Act protects directly that your rights as against public authorities. It's more difficult in an employment relationship to rely on that. The Equality Act helps to the extent that it creates this philosophical belief exception. Um, and that's good, and it's very good that Forstarter was decided in that way. Um, my difficulty with that is that I suggest that, in fact, rather than treating it as a, a positive characteristic, your belief, really what should be protected and protected directly is your right to freedom of expression. And although that gives a certain amount of freedom of expression for people who can say, I have this detailed philosophical belief, it's not as absolute as that. And it needs to be clearer. And I've suggested in the report that we treat that um, in the same way that we treat discrimination against people. So if you are being uh, treated less favourably because of your expression, uh, that that is um, a right that you can be enforced. Now, not absolutely. There will be circumstances where your employer can say, for example, it wants to restrict what you say within the workplace. You might be in, for example, a place of ethnic tensions or of sectarian tensions might be Northern Ireland, you might want to stop people wearing Celtic shirts or Rangers shirts because it causes literally fights, and that's understandable. But when you're outside of your work, or, you're, or for example, you're an army officer or a police, police officer and you can't speak because of, there are good policy reasons for it. But otherwise, when you're outside of your workplace, you should not be able to be treated less favourably because of your, your, what you say. So uh, that, that actually would be something specific you'd have to introduce? Yes, it would be. It would be a change yeah. to the to yeah. change to employment yeah. law. Yes, would have to be. When it comes generally to hate speech, uh, it seems to me that, and this is—I don't think this is in the report actually—but I just would like your view on it. Um, it seems to me that so much of the problem, whether it's non-crime hate instance or indeed whether it is just a supposed hate crime, comes from this original definition that this is a offensive or whatever in the eyes of the victim mm. it's totally mm -hmm. subjective mm -hmm. um, or indeed anybody else as mm. as the wording goes mm. and this came from the mcpherson report i mm. think it back did. 25 years 30 years ago uh, and this seems to me to be the very crux of so much of this that it gives people just carte blanche just to be offended and also, for that matter, you don't even have to have seen the thing happening, whether mm -hmm. it's online or whether indeed if it's in the, if it's a physical uh, act happening out on the street. I mean, would you say that that is something that needs to be reformed or? Yeah, I, I think it is. I just I don't think it's like, in here, is it? It's is not. It? 
although it, it's sort of hinted at to, yes. to an extent, but I think the, the way I'd approach it is this. I, one can, I, I mean, what happens with Stephen Lawrence and what um, Sir William McPherson clearly was looking at and many others, including the now Archbishop of York in that committee, was a, a terrible situation with the police force in London where there was clear evidence of institutional racism, mm. which they found. Um, the difficulty is that the one of the solutions that they came up with, which was that the police in investigating should treat at face value what the victim says when they are investigating, was understandable to the extent that it meant that they treated all alleged victims, alleged victims, complainants, um, and witnesses and suspects and, with respect. Mm. That is understandable. Mm. But I think what the problem with it, um, and indeed the problem that is identified in the Henriquez report, because this is something that goes wider than freedom of speech, it affects the right to the presumption of innocence, which is another central cardinal value in our legal system, which, albeit not perhaps put into practical effect as much as it was in theory, is something with many, many hundreds of years of antecedents too. Mm. And therefore is critical. And and what 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 um has happened is that police forces have literally literally gone about their investigative mm. role by saying, We accept you, Nick, who was a liar who's now in prison for many years and was behind the destruction of people's lives. He he um, followed or Britain to his death. Oh, this um, is the uh, glamour yeah. and so on, and all, all the sex um, offences, and and Edward Heath was effectively tried as a corpse. Uh, I mean, it was an astonishing period, mm -hmm. which um, Mr. Justice Henriquez in that report recognised, uh, and how to what extent that it has really changed the culture of the police, I do not know. But that is very closely connected to the non-crime mm -hmm. hate incident. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, of course. Police officers should always treat any um, witness with respect, but they should not treat them as um, a matter of fact, as a victim. They're not a victim unless they're found to be a victim by court. Now, it may well be that they need to be effectively treated as a victim to, from a postural point of view by the police, but not as a witness. Police are not police forces. Police police officers are not doing their job if they assume at face value what they're being told. They have a duty to investigate it, a duty to the defendant, but also a duty to society because it's an offence against society to convict people wrongly, and it's offence against society to remove the right to to um, the right to the presumption of innocence. Yes, in fact, the language they use uh, is indeed that they call they talk about the victim. Mm -hmm. uh, that's officially, you know, sanctioned language. Uh, it would be right to call them the complainant, presumably, because mm -hmm. victim already is setting up, isn't it, uh, an assumption, presumption. Um, would you therefore say that? And I know that we've digressed, but would you therefore say that that's that it's basically being misinterpreted in a dangerous way. Should should it therefore should that subjectivity be taken out of that definition? Um, it's interesting. I started out my practice as a barrister in the magistrates' court, and I can tell you that word "victim" was used routinely by the CPS in prosecuting offences, and that was the 
then and probably for many, many years before then and probably now, was the ethos um, that they were prosecuting on behalf of victims. Um, but, but a prosecutor has a duty as a minister of justice to the court to put the case fairly and neutrally. Yeah. And good prosecutors do, to be fair to the CPS. Um, and a police officer has a duty before that point to investigate scrupulously and fairly and not to be putting forward, not be, to be pursuing and gathering evidence mm -hmm. to formulate and, and support a particular case. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, that's a fundamental duty. These are all, these are all duties that go back um, many, many years, but have been put in statutory form, for example, in the Police and Criminal Events Act um, in the early 1980s, which is one of the most fundamental and important reforming pieces of legislation. Mm. Uh, introduced, for example, the um, recording of police interviews and the right to exclude evidence, on a, mm. put that on a statutory footing and so on. Um, so these are not new concepts at all uh, in the criminal justice sphere, but the the um, again it's a matter of culture because law can only do so much culture uh, in this widest sense the culture of the police forces um, the culture of the cps and so on is is something that's more difficult to change and more important perhaps to change well with the some of these guidelines the police guidelines uh, the college of policing guidelines mm. uh you know they seem to be tightening and tightening these definitions or rather actually not tightening i mean widening mm. uh tightening therefore the effect on free speech but uh, you know sort of so hatred is now i think it's even become dislike uh the word dislike is used yeah. in these guidelines i find very worrying o on this cultural point cultural point on another cultural point francis um do you think that there is a problem that too many people, particularly young people, certainly something I feel, uh, no longer really care much about yes. free speech. Yes. Actually. Yes. I mean, they, they sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you used to have these sort of conversations with people about free speech. And we always knew, because the opponents used to say things like, uh, uh, oh, well, of course I believe in free speech, but. And you're like, here comes the but, you know. But I think now we've moved on from that. And that actually they don't believe in it at all. I think that is a partic particularly amongst the perhaps most educated with perhaps inverted commas, those who, who go to university where the culture is very much against it. Mm. And again, this, this um, culture of safetyism, mm. um, particularly endemic in American universities, where speech has been characterized as something which actually is an attack on an individual mm. and you hear hysterical and that is the only way to describe them um this is very common in american universities hysterical people screaming and shouting that they are being physically hurt by an individual for just expressing an opinion that they don't like mm. or they assert is offensive or whatever it might be and that has been used to close down speech in American universities and, to close, and, and is increasingly being used to close down speech and debate in British universities too and other European universities. Mm. I, think, I think the problem actually, oddly, is much worse in the English-speaking world than elsewhere. Oh, yeah. And actually it's interesting, one of mm. the, because I'm a bit of an old-fashioned conservative in a way and, and an English free, sort of somebody who spent the last few years talking about the wonders of the English-speaking world, but my God, has the English-speaking world been a disappointment this last 18 months? It really, really has. I, sh I, I should just add, obviously, but people you might know, actually, but 
uh, you've been involved in various uh, challenges, legal challenges to government on the point of lockdown, and mm -hmm. these were going on over the past 18 months. I mean, you've been very much in the forefront of that. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, how you produced this report, but that these sort of restrictions or these things that we're having to be concerned about happening roughly the same time as the physical restrictions. I'm, you know, I'm not drawing any conspiracy from that, but other than the fact that the, the, you know, the screws seem to be tightening on people a bit, you know, um, and you know that disappointment you talk about. I sort of, I always had this slightly maybe. Uh, nostalgic view mm. that the, the English particularly were sort of very truculent about their rights mm. you know you're not going to push me around you know um, that seems to have dissipated and we always wonder what would have happened if Britain had fallen in 1940 mm. and I think the reality is that the answer can be found in the Channel Islands where British police officers sent Jews to the concentration mm. camps and that is a terrible reality. And I'm afraid to say, I'm now certain that that would have happened here. And the arrogance that perhaps some of us, including perhaps me, have felt in the past has been really put in its place this last 18 months, where we discover that actually we don't value freedom now as perhaps I thought that we did and perhaps our value and our courage as a country is just way below what I'd ever expected. And that's a very sad and disappointing reality that it, I've come to realise. It is, but however one fights, you know, one oh, still absolutely. has to fight. I mean, just uh, to, finally, on that point, actually, I, I uh, was horrified quite recently uh, that there was a poll that came out from uh, YouGov, and it was about, it was talking about censorship, uh, and it, it found that 40% of people would be happy for the government to censor books that they deemed homophobic, sexist, mm. racist, all the usual ones. Um, I was just amazed how high that figure was. I couldn't believe. This mm. wasn't just social media companies. They were talking, mm. they were talking about mm. the government. Mm. And I just thought, wait a minute, have I had the wrong view? I mean, all this time? Have I been under a misapprehension? Um, to me, I, I wouldn't have been able to believe that could be so high. I mean, it's a horrifying figure, isn't it? And I think has been, I, I, I do think there has been a concerted attack on freedom over the last 18 months particularly, but I think it has origins that go back well beyond that. Yeah. And I do think that people have just lost their sense of proportion. I mean, you say I've had many challenges and I've expressed public views, my own views on, on what I think is the enormity, using the old fashioned sense of the word, as in terrible thing, of lockdowns and the destruction of human rights, freedoms, and the ability to live as a human being, unprecedented as they are. Um, I, I think that, that has ground people down. I think people mm. have been ground down and they've been pushed into this belief that they find is a necessary accepted part of being a civilized and friendly and nice human being, yes. which is that yes. to say that you should be allowed to say things that might be hurtful is itself nasty. And, and this, this 
part that what goes with safetyism and is hugely relevant to it is this thing about being seen as a nice person mm. and therefore I want to ban this I want to stop you from going out of your house so that you don't kill granny I want to stop you from pr promoting this um, medical debate or engaging in a medical debate because the public health organizations say that that's going to cause harm to other people. I'm a nice person for doing that. Well, don't forget that every tyrannical regime in history has always promoted itself as promoting the greater good. They have never said we are promoting the greater evil. That has never been what they said mm. and never would be what they say. So people are enormously naive and enormously disappointing, frankly, if they consider that what matters is promoting the nice things and giving the state the right to determine what the nice things are. Well, uh, that's a, a great way to end, uh, Francis. I, I, I should say, by the way, where can people see this report? Can they download it? They can it? download it. And At Reclaim, I'm Debbie, sure or? that on your show you yes, can, we can have put a little link yes. to that. Yes. In protection of freedom of speech, uh, point about reports like this is that they give practical solutions. That's very, very important, um, you know, rather than just complain. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Francis, for coming on. Pleasure. Thank you. And um, very best of luck. I hope something comes of it. Um, that's it this week. Uh, we shall see you next time. So thank you for watching. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you.